Good morning, church. Great to see you. Beautiful day. I hope you're well. It's great to, great to have you today. I'm Greg Paris. We're thrilled that you've chosen to worship with us today at Union Chapel. We're in this series we began last week on Easter called You Asked For It. And you have asked a very probing question. You can see the list of items we just projected on the screen a moment ago. Today we want to ask the question, how would Jesus treat refugees? Very pertinent question. I hope this will be meaningful to you, maybe provocative, challenging. Uh, next week we're t- going to talk about suffering. Why is there so much suffering in the world? And then the next week on the subject of doubt, because we all struggle with doubt from time to time. And I hope it'll be an inspiration to you. So thanks for bringing your Bibles. If you have them today, we're going to look at the book of Acts, the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 17. And I'm going to read for us verses 24 to 28. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll project the words on the screen if, if you don't have your Bible. And let me just uh, differentiate just for a moment as we're getting into this subject that the question of refugees and the questions of immigrants is uh, technically a little different. Immigrants are folks who are trying to relocate to another part of the world intentionally so that they can live in that new place uh, long term. They've, they've immigrated to that new country. And of course, in the United States, we're debating the whole immigration question and trying to develop policy around immigration practice here in our country. And, and let, me just, let me just remind us that this is not a simple problem or question. It's a very complicated, very complex, very layered question. And so the, the, the simplistic binaries that folks tend to gravitate to, you know, give me, give me your poor and your huddled masses and this very open-minded open-ended immigration philosophy, and then on the other side, uh, keep America safe, and so a very closed and, and, and closed-minded kind of immigration policy. Probably somewhere in the middle of these extremes, these polarized extremes, is a healthy, balanced, appropriate place, a biblical place, and, and so we need to pray for those who make these decisions of immigration policy and execute those policies, pray for God's wisdom in their lives. Now, the the question of refugee is is technically different. A refugee, by definition, is someone who has been displaced from their country of origin against their will. And so they literally have been moved from the place that they prefer to stay and prefer to live, their own culture, their own family, their own security, their own religion, that sort of thing. And now they're running for their lives, just trying to avoid the persecution or the inherent danger in remaining where they are. So refugees, by definition, are are a little different category. Today we're going to ask the question, how would Jesus treat refugees? And I hope it will be meaningful to you. So Acts chapter 17, our custom is to stand to hear God's word, and I'll begin at verse 24. Now the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. God doesn't live in buildings. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He didn't need anything from us. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath, everything else. From one man, he's describing Adam here, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And so here we see that God is behind the notion of In a particular moment of history, God is the one who maps out boundaries around nations. He's behind that. Now, verse 27, we'll see why he does it, his primary motive for doing it. 
God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. So may God inspire and instruct us today through his word. Thank you so much. You may be seated. 60 million people are now displaced. That is, put in danger, forced away from their homes worldwide. 60 million. This is a crisis of historic proportions. We've never seen so many people who have been refugeed as we have at this moment of history. In Syria alone, a full one half of their entire population, which is about 10 million people, have been displaced or killed. Uh, we're all aware in recent days of the horrible actions of the Assad regime by using chemical weapons on their own citizens, including women and children. Horrific. So millions of Syrians have fled to neighboring countries, Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, other parts of the world. One of my concerns when preparing for this subject is, as I reflected on this subject, one of my concerns is that, that there are many of us in American culture and particularly those of us who are Christ followers, maybe even people in this church, who don't spend a lot of time thinking about or being concerned over the question of 60 million people displaced, refugees in the world. And really, it's a product of the culture we live in, and it's easy to look the other way, and it's easy not to be um, informed or concerned about such matters if uh, all you have is some nationalistic point of view or some polarized political view, you know, where the political pundits are chirping about this all day, every day on one news service or another. And so we listen in on that and we begin to form ideas of our own. But my concern is that, is that we, we don't, especially those of us in the Christian community, those of us in the evangelical Christian community who believe the Bible true and want to see the world from a biblical perspective and have a worldview that is kingdom Centered, my concern is that we really aren't expressing as much care about this subject as we should. And, and so my challenge for us today is simply this, that we would be more concerned about having a biblical worldview toward this subject rather than some nationalistic worldview. Being more concerned about what's best for America rather than acting by faith in the principles of God's word and the accomplishment of the Great Commission. There is one great commandment. It's to love God with all of your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And the, there's a great commission. So these are just two great things that Christians should be attentive to. Love God and love your neighbor. And the great commission is to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so those two things should inform, always inform our worldview, always inform our perspective. And so as Christians, we need to open our eyes, I think, and open our hearts. We must not remain silent or inactive around this very important question. We need to know how the Bible informs our perspective and how the Bible leads us to action in the face of such levels of human suffering. Now, you see on your outline there, there's a four, four points I want to make, and the first one is this, and just let me teach a little bit as we go through these. Number one, God oversees the movement of all peoples. God oversees the movement of all peoples. In our text here in Acts 17, it says, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. We rehearse that. 
It's God's appointment in particular moments in history to outline the boundaries of each of the nations. And he has purpose in this. He has meaning behind it. He has, he has design behind moving people from place to place. And that, and that meaning is so that the people who are displaced would seek him, perhaps reach out to him, and find him. So, so God has always been about assigning people to places. And he scatters people here, and he scatters people over there. For example, he moved, he moved uh, the Hebrews out of Judah and into Egypt. And for 400 years, they were in bondage in Egypt. And then, at his appointed time, he moves them right back to Judah. There was a period of time in Israel's history where he exiled them away from Jerusalem, and then decades later, 80 years later, he exiles them back. In the New Testament, we see persecution and suffering as a leverage point to get people to move. The stoning of Stephen became the first Christian martyr. And so we see Stephen's death, his his martyrdom, as a means by which God actually used to scatter the early believers in the first century. And that where did they go? They went to Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the world. So when we see the migration of people in history for a multitude of reasons, it's always by the governance of God. God's behind that. And Acts 17 reminds us that God is doing it for a reason so that people would seek him and perhaps find him. Uh, So make no mistake about it. What's behind all of this is that God wants to be sought. God wants to be found. He wants to be known. He wants to be enjoyed. God wants to include as many people as he can into his family. And if he has to displace some folks in order to expose them to an opportunity to be included in his family, then that's what he'll do. He'll scatter them over there and he'll scatter them over here. So God will actually use the tragedy, if you will, of forced migration into the triumphal future salvation. And so that's what's at work. God oversees the movement. Now here's number two. You want to write this down. God generally establishes the government for the protection of all people. For the protection. This is why governments are instituted in the divine plan of God so that the people of those countries will be protected. Romans 13 verses 1 to 4, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And the next few verses simply illustrate that if you're part of a country, then you should obey the laws of that country. And if you don't obey the laws of that country, then you should expect to be punished as a result of that. The last verse says they are God's servants, governments, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer because we have to have law and order. And so God establishes boundaries and God establishes government so that people can be preserved. They can be protected. It's for the common good. And so we see God's divine design in the context of government. So the government exists under God's authority to promote good. Therefore, any conversation about refugees or immigrants, for that matter, put it in context now of our subject, must take into account the God-given role of government. One of the chief purposes, you could say the chief purpose of government, being the responsibility to protect 
its citizens. Did you get it? Yeah, I've said it eight, eight times. That's the purpose of government. So in a free society like ours, we now have a responsibility, right, to engage the political process, to exercise the right to vote, to vet and assess candidates who are running for political office and vote for the people that we believe will do the best for the common good and protection of all. And so we have a role to play. So here's number three. Write this down. God specifically commands his church to provide, provide for his people. Now, we find in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, this is the Apostle Paul now, and he's writing. He said, therefore, as we have opportunity, when there's an opportunity, we should do good to all people. And he says, and especially to members of the household of faith. So do good to everyone. If you have opportunity, do good. Next Saturday, we have a community service day. That's an opportunity. And we're going to do good. We have about 25 houses that have signed up for assistance. And so we're going to go down to the east central neighborhood, and it'll be a great blessing to go down there and, and encourage some people by touching their property and may, leaving it in better shape than when we found it. And we'll demonstrate the love of God in a very practical way. It's great. And if, if you haven't signed up to, to be part of it, you should. Beth and I are looking forward to being there. Uh, we've got a great team of people we'll be working with that day. And it'll be great fun. We always have a great time on Community Service Day. And I hope you'll, you'll sign up. And so the distinction, though, in this verse is when you have opportunity, do good to all people. And especially, Paul said, to members of the family of faith, the household of faith. I mentioned last week that Beth and I, on August 20, will be married 40 years. And yeah, okay, yeah, I know. People, people sometimes clap. And I know why. It's because they find it amazing that you could live with me that long. She, she is a saint. It's true. Now, what we've discovered, uh, having been married 40 years, is that our level of connection and intimacy is much greater now than it was when we were 20, 25 years old. It grows over time, as it should. We're going through this cancer treatment, as most of you know. We did it once before, 26 years ago, and now we've, we're going through it again. And, and we've talked about this and reminisced about it a little bit. And the, the, the fact is that our experience this time going through this cancer treatment is completely different than it was the first time. We were 35 years old the first time, and now we're in our early 60s. And so all, all we can imagine is that we're different people, and that's why it's a different experience. Cancer's the same. same You've got the same hell to go through. I mean, it's a real nuisance. But we're different. And so our attitude is different, our demeanor is different, our connection with each other is different, our, our level of peace is different, our level of hope is different, our faith is different. It's, everything is different. And, and that's a product, I think, of developing closeness. And so at this time in our lives, if Beth hurts, I'm hurting. If she's in pain, I'm in pain. People ask, How, how's your wife doing? I say, well, she's doing Okay. And if they ask me, if they're careful enough with me, they'll say, well, how are you doing? And I'll say, well, I'm kind of doing like she is. So the last 10 months or so, when she was good, I've been good. When she's not been so good, I've not been so good. Because I feel her pain. If someone were to hurt my wife, you would be hurting me. Yeah. 
You feel that, right? Because we're in this together at this point. The same is true with Jesus and his bride. You, the implications are pretty clear here. Jesus, Jesus said that he loves his bride, the church. The, uh, Saul of Tarsus was this chief Hebrew who thought the early Christian movement was a, was a horrible thing, and so he was a chief persecutor of the early Christians. Saul of Tarsus, who became the great apostle Paul. And the way Saul of Tarsus finally got his, got his bell rung is he was on his way to Damascus one day and on that road, and God knocked him to the ground and put him on the ground and blinded him. And then he hears these words from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Saul had been persecuting men and women and even putting some to death. So he was, he was a bad boy at the time. And the voice he hears from Jesus is, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? And so you get the implication, right? If you hurt Jesus, if you hurt the church, if you hurt the people of God, you hurt brothers and sisters of Jesus, then you're hurting Jesus. In Matthew 25, we get this question uh, uh, that, that comes out, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and meet those needs? And the king shall reply, Jesus said, truly I tell you, whoever did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So you see, you see the connection. So as you do to the people of God, you do to God. As you do to the bride of Christ, you do to Jesus himself. Yeah, you got it, right? So now put this in the context of what we're talking about here. Consequently, it is right for us in the body of Christ to care for our brothers and sisters in crisis. And we should be reminded that many millions of these 60 million refugees in the world today, these are Christian people, brothers and sisters in Christ. And they're displaced and they're hurting and they're hungry and they don't have shelter and they're in great need. And so such care for our brothers and sisters who are refugees is right and good and godly. We might even put it in the category of required. It's required of us to help them. And so God specifically commands the church to provide for his people. Now here's number four. You want to write this down. God seeks, he shelters, he serves, he showers the refugee with his grace. The refugee with his grace. Perhaps the best illustration, refugee story in the Bible comes from the little Old Testament book called Ruth, the book of Ruth. Let me tell you the story. Ruth was actually a daughter-in-law of a woman named Naomi. Naomi was a Hebrew. She and her husband and their two sons, Malon and Chilion, they had to leave Judah at one point in history, uh, around the, the end of the patriarch and beginning of the period of the king, uh, judges, and, and so they had to leave Judah because of famine in order to find food, and so they moved to the land of Moab among the Moabites. Let me tell you about the Moabites. They began generations earlier, it's a little sordid, but watch this, when Lot had an incestuous relationship with his own daughter. It's not, not good, and God frowned on it very much. Generations later, Moabite women seduced Israelite men into sexual immorality. And as a result, 24,000 Israelites were struck dead by God. It's a bad thing. So, you know, God looks at the Moabites and goes, mm, 
don't care for the Moabites. So the message was clear, don't go near Moabite women. Did you get the message? 24,000 died because we were messing around with the Moabite women. Don't go near Moabite women. Okay, we got the message. The scripture even teaches that Moabites are not allowed into the Lord's assembly down to the 10th generation. So no Moabites, please. So you got the, you got the idea. Now, Ruth's sons, uh, Naomi's sons, Malon and Chilion, they come of age while they're in the land of Moab, and they marry Moabite wives. And shortly thereafter, at some time later, all three of the men die. So Naomi's husband dies, and Malon and Chilion both die, leaving these Moabite wives. Now Naomi's daughters-in-law, and Naomi begs them, look, I'm going back to Israel. You should stay here among your own people, your own culture, your own family, your own religion. You should stay here with your own people. And one of the daughters-in-law oblige Naomi, and she stays. But the other one, Ruth, she refuses, and she gives that famous speech that we're all familiar with, I will not leave you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, where you lay down, I'll lay down. And so we get, this, we get this, this bonding moment between these two women, a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. So they head back to Israel. Now here, here is Ruth. Now she is displaced. She's away from her home. She's away from her culture. She's away from her language. She doesn't look the same. She doesn't act the same. She doesn't talk the same. She has a different religion. She's got all of the, the baggage of her refugees, and she needs provision, and she needs sustenance, and she needs family. Sounds familiar, right? We can tell this 60 million times now in today's world. Now, enter Boaz. He's a Jewish guy living in Judah at the time. Boaz means the Lord of the harvest, and he sees Ruth, this Moabite woman, this refugee, working in his field, and he inquires, who's that woman? And he's told she's a Moabite woman, and the story about her coming to Judah with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so instead of kicking this Moabite woman out of his field, which would have been perfectly understandable, right? I mean, we understand the rules, no Moabite women. But instead of kicking this refugee out of his field, Boaz seeks her out. He goes to her. He greets her. Now, she's different. She looks different. She acts different, different culture, different language, different religion. She serves other gods. Not the same. We don't know if she has any intention to try to assimilate into the new culture or not. We just know she's, from, she's not from around here. In fact, she's a Moabite. He shelters her. He promises her safety. He does the unthinkable. He stoops to serve her. He invites her into his house, feeds her a nice meal of toasted grain, gives her 30 to 50 pounds of grain to take home with her. It's like a half month's wage. All of this sets the stage for a romance of redemption, if you will. Boaz eventually takes Ruth as his wife and together they have a child whose lineage, watch it now, would one day lead to the quintessential kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. So, so think about this. This refugee Moabite woman, Ruth, is in the family tree of Jesus. She becomes a great-great-grandmother of Jesus himself. Now why? Why in the world, connect the dots now with me, 
why in the world would God put the story of Ruth in the Bible? This Moabite woman, this refugee. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Because God wants us to know how much he cares for the outcast and the oppressed and the stranger and the refugee. In Ruth's book, chapter 2, verse 12, we hear Boaz standing before Ruth now, and he blesses her, pronounce a blessing on her. Listen to this blessing. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. In other words, you stuck with your mother-in-law, Naomi, and you should be honored for that. You left your family and the safety and the familiar of your own culture, and you came here in order to be loyal to her and to see that her needs were cared for. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord. And then he says, the God of Israel. Not those gods you've been worshiping, those pagan gods among the Moabites, but the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Isn't that beautiful? That is so strong. That is so great. So this is a reflection of God's attitude and heart toward the refugee. Now, let me, let me just put it into our context right now. Let me kind of push you a little bit and encourage you a little bit. We live in a world now where the primary pushback with the whole refugee question is related to the faith of Islam, toward Muslims. And this is, this is, this is the global conflict now that we're trying to wrestle with and try to figure out. I recently reviewed a book by Dr. David Garrison, the book is entitled, A Wind in the House of Islam. Now, the reason I reviewed that is in preparation for this message and because I want it to be as current as I possibly can about what is happening by the work of God's Holy Spirit among Muslims in the world. And Christians should be informed about this. We should have perspective about this. We should constantly be asking the questions, what in the world is God doing? Where is he doing it? Who is yet to be reached with the message of Christ, and how can we be involved? And so these are the questions that, in, that inform us. And so I've looked at this work by Dr. Garrison, and he reports an amazing work of the Holy Spirit among Muslims in the world. And frankly, for us Americans, and even Christian Americans, it seems like Islam is completely misunderstood like it's this big giant, this big, this big imposing force. You know, the, the Islam is the boogeyman is going to get us somehow. And so we operate out of fear rather than out of faith, out of purpose, out of mission. Muslims are often associated with violence and jihad. And therefore, many Christians are afraid of Muslims. You may have an inherent fear of Muslims. But listen to me. God has promised that one day in heaven, there are going to be people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every culture, every ethnicity, every group is going to be represented in heaven someday. And so Dr. Garrison accurately reports that the 20th century, listen to this now, the 20th century or the 1900s saw the greatest turning of Muslims to Christ in the 1,300-year history of Muslim-Christian interaction. Think about that. In places like Indonesia, in Iran, in Algeria, in Bangladesh, in Iraq. We have missionaries that we support right now who are, doing, who, are, who are doing work in those nations, seeing Muslims coming to faith. And of course, we know firsthand that thousands of Muslims have come to Christ in the former Soviet Central Asian nations like Kazakhstan. When we first started our initiatives in Kazakhstan 20 years ago, 
there were less than 100 believers in the entire nation. And today there are tens of thousands of followers of Jesus. And we have at least a small part to play in that. Glory to God. It's a wonderful thing. And so he concludes the first 13 years of the 21st century, so from 2000 to 2013, we have seen more Muslim movements to Christ. Now, he defines a movement to Christ as 1,000 converts and baptisms or and or 100 new churches planted. 1,000 converts, 100 churches comprise a movement in this definition. And he said in the first 13 years of the 21st century, we've seen more movements to Christ in Muslim cultures than at any time in history. 15 new Muslim movements to Christ have erupted in the Middle East and Western Asia. 19 additional movements are taking place in Eastern and Southeastern Asia. Meanwhile, in East, North, and West Africa, a further 35 movements of Muslims to Christ have reached or exceeded the 1,000 baptisms or 100 new church starts. Let me put this on the screen because I want you to take this home with you. I want you to know what in the world is going on. More Muslims have come to Christ in the past 20 years than in the past 1,400 years combined. Something's going on. Something historic is happening right now while you and I are alive. Something is going on in the house of Islam. A wind is blowing in the house of Islam. God is revealing himself to the Muslim peoples. God has a design and a plan to reach Muslim peoples with the good news and hope found alone in Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful, amazing, miraculous time to be alive. We should be aware of it. What is God doing? Where is he doing it? Who is yet to be reached? How can we be involved? So what shall we do in response to a God who oversees the movement of all peoples, who generally establishes government for the protection of people, who specifically commands his church to provide for his people, and seeks shelter, serves, and showers refugees with his grace. How do we respond to that? Five things. One, they're on your, it's on your outline. There are no fill in the blanks. I don't want you to miss it. Number one, speak the gospel clearly. First and foremost, let's point people. Let's point people that we know, people in our family, people who, who are our friends, people in our associations, people that we are in relationship with. Let's point them to the wonderful glory, goodness, and greatness of God's grace. And beyond that, let's point anyone and everyone that we have influence over to the wonder of God's grace. Let me just remind you that the first journey that Jesus took in his life as a baby was as a refugee. His little young family packed up, an angel had warned them, and they fled to Egypt as refugees. Jesus is not detached from the refugee. He is fully connected to the plight and the need of refugees. Jesus is not a stranger to our suffering. He's familiar with our pain. So here's the opportunity, maybe greater now than ever before, to offer Christ to these cultures and countries with so many displaced peoples. 20 years ago, we asked the question, God, where in the world do you want us to try to impact for Christ's sake? The Apostle Paul said, I've always had an ambition to preach the gospel where it's never been heard, and that became our ambition. And so we said, where are you sending us? And he said, well, I want you to go to the Kazakhs of Soviet Central Asia, traditionally Muslim people. And so that's where we went. But friends, let me, let me just say, 
The reason we went there, it wasn't because it was easy or because it was safe or because it was comfortable. We went there because that's where God told us to go. And I don't know how much money. We've, we've spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. I, I've never added it up. I, I'm sure it could, maybe millions. That we have spent in Kazakhstan trying to offer Christ to a traditionally Muslim culture. And Kazakhstan, if you don't know, is on the other side of the planet. It is really hard to get there. I mean, it's fly as far as you can, then take a train as far as you can, and then take a, take a, take a car as far as you can, and then, and then walk as far as you can. You finally get there. It's way out there. And listen, it's not easy. And it's not safe. 20 years ago, when we first sent people from our congregation to live in Kazakhstan full-time, it was not safe to be, to be an American in Kazakhstan. And it certainly wasn't safe to be a Christian person in a Muslim culture. But that's where we went. Because that's where God called us to. And now through the shifting movements of people in the refugee realities of our world today, what's actually happening is that people from these unreached groups around the world and from other cultures around the world, as it turns out, maybe we don't have to go there to tell them about Jesus. They're coming here. They're in the backyard. Yeah, we don't like them, though. They're, they look different. They act different. I'm not, we're not sure they want to be Americans. Mm. It's not the priority. The priority is to offer them the amazing love and grace of Jesus. I had a family after first service this morning tell me that, that a, a couple from Syria have moved in right next door in Muncie. And they have horrible stories to tell about persecution. They're Christians from Syria. So we have to overcome our risk aversion. And hear the call of God to go and give our lives for Jesus' sake. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Let me put this statement on the screen. Because I, I, I really want you to go home messed up. I can tell you're already messed up. When self is no longer our God, safety is no longer our concern. What you don't know is that I've had in, in my sermon file in my office for many, many years now, a message that I prepared to preach in the event that I anticipated would happen when one of us or one of the members of our partner churches in our Kazakhstan initiatives, when someone from Union Chapel would be seriously hurt or killed trying to take the gospel to Kazakhstan. We've had almost 30 people from our congregation live in Kazakhstan full-time. The longest tenure was 11 years. We've had over 400 members of our congregation travel to Kazakhstan for one reason or another, to serve and to offer Christ. It is a miracle that no one's been seriously hurt or no one's been killed. We didn't go because it was safe. We didn't go because it was easy. We went because that's the mandate. And we went because we love Muslims. We had a heart to reach a Muslim culture. 
We love the people of Islam. We want to show the love of God to them. Because everybody needs the Lord. And just as sure as we're in the room right now, we're going to have to get over this bias. Have to get past it. Well, I had a Muslim once do something to me. I know. I know somebody really got messed up. Okay? Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. No one said it was easy. No one said it was safe. Just the mandate. Speak the gospel clearly. We have one guy in our church. His name is Larry Hargis, and he holds the record for the number of most number of times to travel to Kazakhstan. Larry Hargis, many of you know Larry. He has been to Kazakhstan, wait for it, 39 times. I know. Guy has frequent flyer miles. I think he's good for the rest of his life. He can go anywhere. Speak the gospel clearly. Number two, pray to God earnestly. Prayer is the most powerful means by which we can participate with him and his purposes in the world. Let me just summarize this way. It's virtually impossible to pray for someone's blessing and not like them at the same time. It doesn't matter who they are. So if you focus on the refugees and pray for them and pray for God's blessing, what you'll discover is you'll start loving them if you'll pray for them. Whether it's for the families with small children floating dangerously in an overloaded boat right now, and there is, there's an overloaded boat Right now, as we speak, we're sitting in this nice climate-controlled room, nice, nice seating, nice environment among friends. It's all cushy. It's nice. The biggest problem we have today is, you know, deciding what we're going to eat for lunch. And that's the biggest challenge we have. And, and they're in a boat, overcrowded boat, and they're praying right now. There's a little family, a little Muslim family. There's a husband, there's a wife, and there's three little babies and they're in a boat right now in the Aegean Sea praying to God that they won't die before they get to land. I thought about putting pictures of refugees on the screen today, but I just felt like it, was, it would be too manipulative. And I don't want to manipulate you. There's a picture that is emblazoned in my mind. If you just go online and Google uh, refugee crisis or something like this, you'll see pictures. And they're, they're horrific. There's one picture of a little, little guy, a little Muslim boy is about two years old, and he's stretched out on a beach face down. He's dead. He's dead as he can be. He's washed up on the beach. And there's a soldier standing there, full uniform, whether he's a friend or foe, he's standing looking at this little boy. So whether you're praying for little families like that, or you're praying for some guy freezing to death on the, on the border of Hungary, we should pray. We should pray. Number three, act justly. Micah 6.8 gives it to us. We all know this verse. Micah 6.8. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Did you hear it? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. See, generous and sacrificial care for the poor is walking humbly with your God. How are you doing with that? Going out on community service day on Saturday and helping people, some of the lowest of the low in our own community, with a hand, just a little hand up. That's walking humbly. Well, I, I don't even drive in that neighborhood. I don't even drive through there, let alone get out of my car and actually talk to the people there. That's walking humbly. 
with your God. That's what we do. We're not afraid afraid of the graveyard. We're not afraid of dead people. We're not afraid of people who are lost. We're not afraid of people who are in need. We're not afraid of that. We're the resurrection people. We're the people of Easter. We're the people who have the power of God in us. We're the folks who have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead operating in our lives. That's why we can go to a place like Kazakhstan and go down in the neighborhood, make a difference. Jesus is with us. (laughs) Come on. And so we love sacrificially. You know, the Good Samaritan, he's the guy who got lunched out, left for dead. The guys who should have helped him walked right by him. Now the Samaritan, the guy who's not all politically correct, he's an outcast. He's a Samaritan. He's the wrong, he's the wrong ethnicity. And he stops in Jesus' story and helps the guy. Not only does he help him, but he, he, he picks him up and, and, and binds his wounds and pays for all of the expenses. When I get back in town, tell me what it costs and I'll pay for everything. So he, he cared, he served, he paid. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever taken care of someone's every need like that? Let me answer the question before you answer it. I know the answer for every single one of us. The answer is yes. Let me tell you who that person is. Yourself. Now here's the problem, and I'm going to leave you with this just like I have everyone else. I'm not going to let you off the hook either. You know that Jesus fellow? Remember Jesus, the one we claim to love, serve, give our lives to, worship Jesus? Remember him? Here's what Jesus said. Now I want you to treat your neighbor just like you treat yourself. Dang it. That's what he said. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. And the call is to love strangers like that. Finally, hope confidently. You know, there's a day coming when there's going to be no more suffering in the world. Can I, here's the good news. We'll end on the good news, right? There will be no more wars, no more famines, no more crazy leaders causing genocide in our world. Thank God. All these knuckleheads are going to be put aside. No, no more of that. We place our hope then in the one who has promised to wipe away every tear, to eliminate every every point of suffering, everything crooked made straight. So we fix our eyes on him, and as it turns out, we're all sojourners. We're all aliens in a foreign land. We're all strangers just passing through. We don't actually and ultimately belong here. This is not our home. We belong to another place, another city, the Bible says, whose builder and maker is God. We're going to a place that God has prepared with his hands. And so, as it turns out, we are all migrants. We're all immigrants. We're all refugees just passing through, looking for our final home because this isn't yet. And in that day, when we are all together in that final place, the city of God, we are going to sing a new song. And I'm telling you, it's going to be a song we will sing with all of our hearts. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and power and might and dominion for he alone has paid the price for our sins, made a place for us. People from every tribe, every language, every nation, every people will be there singing that song.
How would Jesus treat refugees? Did you get it? Your response is, I got it. Did you get it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word which lamps our feet and lights our way. Thank you, God, that you have given us perspective on this important subject. And so now, Lord, we, we confess. We confess that it's so easy for us to lose perspective and, and turn the other way and miss the opportunity. God, we, it's so easy for us to be distracted. So help us to focus in a way that's pleasing to you. Help us to see the world through your eyes. Help us to get a biblical perspective. And then, Lord, give us courage to live in such a way that we honor the greatest purpose and plan you have for our world. Preaching the gospel, praying earnestly, acting justly, loving sacrificially, hope that is confident in you. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayer today. Help us now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, would you stand with us now as we sing?